0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Jay Lake. Thank you for joining me, Jay. Hi, Rick. It's uh, good to be here. Jay, you've written pretty much everything in multiple volumes in many ways. I'd like you to just talk a little bit about being so prolific and so well-versed in writing in pretty much any genre. How do you move from one genre to another without the genres infecting one another? Well, I'm not sure that I wouldn't call it a neurosis
1: or possibly psychosis, frankly. Uh, But every project is different. And I I space time between projects. I once made the mistake of writing two novels back to back, literally finishing one up and about three days later starting another, and nearly broke something doing that. So the real answer is separation. I write a novel, I put it in the drawer, I go work on short stories, articles, interviews, whatever, and then come back to it later. And then if I'm going to switch gears, I wait a few months. So I let my head clear.
0: Your latest novel that you're just reading to us from tonight is uh, Space Opera, which is a really interesting genre, I think. So talk a little bit about uh, creating an entire universe out of whole cloth. That's a funny thing,
1: Rick, because uh, when I wrote Trial of Flowers, for example, which is a, a kind of a new weird fantasy of mine, the outline was five paragraphs long, and I wrote about a 160,000-word book out of that. Uh, the outline for the Sunspin Space Opera project is 140 pages long. And I keep adding to it. It's, and about 100 pages of that is background about the universe, essays and ship lists and, you know, history of the universe to keep myself on track for exactly that reason to build that world. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that I remember even reading as a kid was Robert Heinlein's future histories and being fascinated by the timelines and, and, and all, all of the implied reality behind that. So I guess at one level, I'm really consciously modeling that, um, again, with, with timelines, with histories. This particular universe is modeled after very early Renaissance Europe, where they're still very aware that Rome collapsed, and they're only now getting back to it after a thousand years of wandering around in the darkness. Um, that's kind of the situation these people are in. So there's a historical model, there's a genre model, and then there's just the whole make it up as I go along and isn't this fun
0: business. Uh, it really is fun I could just tell from it from this brief excerpt you read to us how much fun you are having and how much fun your readers are going to have uh, when you're doing this uh, because you're talking about, you know what times that from the characters perceptions are pretty grim and things are really essentially terrible it's this is a post-apocalyptic story yet you're writing something that you know your readers are going to experience as this grand really fun adventure and that's a kind of an interesting schism.
1: Well, yeah, and, and in fact, it's these people are. it to be more accurate to say it's a post-post-apocalyptic story. These people have emerged from that terrible, terrible time, and they're just now catching up to their ancestors. And so they're very conscious of the fact that they finally, finally, are doing things even their ancestors couldn't do. And at the same time, they've never understood what happened to their ancestors. So they're dreadfully afraid of bringing about yet another apocalypse. So I think the tension comes again from making that history make sense to the characters. And, and giving them sort of these impossibly high stakes. Oh, my God, if we make the wrong move, the universe is going to end again. And that's fun. <laughs>
0: Now you talked about this being based um, on on our history, and I really like that notion of that, of you know the future seeming like our our glorious past resurrected in a in a new uh, technology with and a new skin with technology that we can only barely imagine. And uh, one of the things I think you're doing a lot here is taking you know the old Arthur C. Clarke technology indistinguishable from magic and yet I sense one of the things that makes this stuff make sense is that you have somewhere in the back of your mind an idea of how all this technology um, how it works for you at least on a logical level so I'd like you to talk about how much of this uh, plot spins out of you know your your understanding of the technology and how much of it just comes from the characters
1: well remember that in science fiction you're basically allowed to do one impossible thing You're allowed to cheat one important idea to make the story go. Everything else has to make sense. Um, And so the the sort of impossible technology in this story is the way that the starships work, the the interstellar drive system, uh, which is based on a macro-scale version of quantum entanglement. So they can only go to places they've been before. Um, So you can have faster-than-light travel, but only after you've made a relativistic journey to your destination. Then you can go back and forth. So you wind up with an incredibly constrained transportation system and that, in ter- which was in fact the very original idea I had that drove the story that incredibly constrained transportation system which from a science fiction point of view is bas- or from a science point of view is basically BS frankly um, drives the social and economic and political organization of this world and that in turn drives the fundamental one of the fundamental story goals of a lot of the characters, one of the fun- fundamental story problems which is essentially how to build a star drive that works independently of these of these specific pair up roots. Uh, almost everything else that happens, the, the relationship between the imperator and the people, the problems of the before, the secret that the missing before Michaela Cannon is hiding, all rise up out of the political situation created by that transportation problem. So I really took one kind of magical piece of technology and everything else is essentially a logical outcome either of that or of people just trying to solve problems in everyday life.
0: You know, one of the most enjoyable aspects of space opera is the politics because it is such a, a really, uh, all these stories are really bare knuckles politics, and it's fun to to see those, to in, enjoy those as we see uh, something even more ludicrous play out before our own eyes.
1: I absolutely agree with that. I mean, I, I I'm more thinking about. When I was writing this, initially concepting this, I was thinking about sort of the nineteen seventies Niven Pornell books, you know, Mote God's Eye, that kind of thing. That that or, or even Dune, where, where yeah, there's plenty of battles and action going on, but it's really about the politics and about the the shifts in the culture. That's really what I'm after in this series, because I completely agree with you. That's just a hell of a lot of fun to watch that happen.
0: Uh- You know, it strikes me that uh, architecting the politics and and the political structures and the societal structures must be as or more challenging than the technology itself.
1: Well, that's why I have that 140-page outline, because I'm trying to make sense out of all that. You know, in this world, you have the empire itself, which is, in a sense, kind of your central casting industrial empire, except for this transportation problem they have. But because the ship the starships are so critical and so powerful, and in some sense, is so limited. The ship mines are, are their own political entity. They're, they're sentient and they're not subject to the emperor, uh, the imperator. So, the Navis parliament is their government. And essentially, they have a monopoly on force projection because nobody can get from star to star without their help. And at the same time, I have the politics of these befores, these people that have survived from the days of the old empire because they're these quasi-immortal cyborgs. So back to Earth history for a moment, In, imagine some 4th century AD Roman soldier and engineer who simply lived through the Dark Ages. And what a, what a bitter, crazy person they'd be by the time the Renaissance rolled around. And yet these people are 1,000, 2,000 years old, and they know everything. They rem- they've done everything, they've been everywhere, they remember everything. And so they give everybody else in the culture a giant inferiority complex. And so I have pulling these different political threads together, which again rise up out of the history and out of the technology that I've posited to make this thing, are really what drive the story.
0: You know, uh, as a writer, this is a, a big project, and I'm wondering how you intend to publish this. Is this going to be one 1,000-page 1, book, or are you going to uh, be divvying it up into installments?
1: Well, another thing that drove this project was that I have two trilogies out with tour books, the Mainstream Trilogy and the Green Trilogy. And in both cases, I originally wrote the first book as a standalone, and then was asked to write more books. So I hadn't designed a series arc or a trilogy arc. So this project, I wanted a full arc. In effect, it's one 600,000-word book. And my goal was to divide it into thirds and publish it in thirds. My agent convinced me that we'd be better off selling four books that were 150,000 words each than three books that were 200,000 words, simply because the the uh, economics of producing a book change when it gets to be too long. So it's turned into a tetralogy now. Uh, it will be in four volumes. The first volume will be finished actually about a week from right now as we're talking and going to my agent before the end of this month. And I'm about halfway through writing the second volume. So it's definitely going to come out in four pieces.
0: Now, uh, I just want to... Uh, step back to your previous trilogies Uh, these were very different from one another and from the one you're You're talking about now, Uh, the escapement trilogy is so much fun, and you the the you did a great uh, uh, tweak with the science on that, which where you went to the Fortean list. I'd like you to just talk a little bit about that, because that was such a great uh, uh, tweak. Well,
1: remember my comment about the one impossible thing you get to do. The impossible thing I do in that universe is that I make uh, the Earth is clockwork and it's orbiting the Sun on a brass track, and this is a very literalization of the God the Watchmaker metaphor. As you referred to, I got a lot of help from the 14 mailing list, Uh, especially a gentleman named Robin Hill, who's an aerospace engineer in the UK, was extremely helpful to me in taking this concept and making it make sense. Now, of course, if you imagine a 97 million mile diameter ring of brass around the sun hanging in outer space, the thermal characteristics alone would tear this thing apart. this, This doesn't hold water at any level except kind of as a thought experiment. Uh, which is why I'm terribly, terribly amused that Tor published it as science fiction, because to me it's clearly fantasy. But that clockwork roof literally springs and in gears inside the world and, and a 100-mile-high wall at the equator topped with brass teeth that interlock with this ring ring of brass around the sun is the central conceit of the book. And all of the actions of all three, or of the series, all the actions of all three books take place against this backdrop.
0: You know, uh your books are so imaginative and we have so much fun reading them. I uh, I'm wondering uh it because you kind of go so far out. I'm wondering if you'll ever like settle down, you know, have thought of like writing, you know, a, a you know, a kitchen window epiphany novel or <laughs> That's
1: hard to say. I, I you know, my next two projects after the Space Opera, one is an urban fantasy collaboration with J.A. Pitts who wrote uh, Black Blade Blues, uh, also from Tor. And it's certainly not a kitchen window epiphany project, but it is sort of ordinary people, sort of. I mean, it's urban fantasy. They're werewolves. But people walking down the streets of a modern American city, not, you know, running around in in spectacularly different universes. The other project that I have in the pike is a magical history of the Old West called uh, Original Destiny Manifest Sin that I've actually wrote about 100 pages of seven or eight years ago and then realized that I wasn't a good enough writer to finish it. So I'll be coming back to that. And again... It's got its own grandeur. Old West stories have a huge sweep to them if they're done right. But it's anchored in our world, so it's a little bit closer to the kitchen window than Clockwork Earth or impossible star-spanning empires.
0: Well, I can't wait for a a magical Old West story from Jay Lake. I've been speaking with Jay Lake. His forthcoming novel is? Uh,
1: Next book out will be Kalampura, which is the third book in the Green Trilogy, and it will be out in January of 2012.
0: Thank you for joining me, Jay.
1: Thank you, Rick. I really appreciate it.